All right, the book of Job. Uh, you can see on your outline there, I feel like it's kind of a broken record here at points with some of this stuff. Job was named after the main character in the book, uh, whose name was Job. It's not Job. Uh, you know, pronounce it Job, so you get that quite a bit. Uh, the author, we don't know. Again, in this one, a couple of theories. Some people say Job wrote his own story. Uh, others posit that it's a guy named Elihu who is in the story. He's one of Job's friends, and I'll set that up in a minute. Others say that Moses is the one who wrote the story of uh, Job and penned it, put it to, uh, put it to paper or parchment, shall I say. Others positive maybe it was Solomon or some editors through the time. We really don't know, but what we do gather about Job is that this was likely an oral tradition for many, many centuries among the Jewish people. The time frame of Job is set among the patriarchs back when Abraham was alive, and several things from the context of the story set it in that time period. One was that Job lived to be 210 years. Uh, that's the same age as Abraham's father, Terah. So it's Back in the time when men were living a much longer lifespan, so we have that age that he lived. He lived for 140 years after his calamity. Uh, you see that Job's wealth was measured in livestock, which was another time, a sign of the patriarchal times, that you measured your wealth by your livestock, your possessions, your land, things along those lines, not in monetary value. Uh, El Shaddai is the name for God used frequently throughout the book of Job, and that again is a patriarchal term that we see referencing most most commonly used uh, in the days of the patriarchs. There's no mention of the Mosaic law in the book of Job, and Job offered the sacrifices for his family, for his sons and his daughters, and interceded. So it kind of gives the idea there that this predated the Mosaic law, because unless you were a priest, you weren't supposed to offer sacrifices for anyone. And so uh, him doing that as the intercessor, the priest for his family, so to speak, again, sets in that context, and then these raids coming in from outside peoples indicates a time and an era in history when it was much more uh, vagrant, much more agricultural, and people would just come in war. Beyond that, when you're established as a, nat a nation uh, and a whole society, a group living together, if somebody came in and raided you, then your country went to war with that country. It was more of a country situation than different bands of raiders coming in. So all of these clues from the story kind of tell us that Job was an ancient story. Some have speculated, and it's just speculation because we don't have time frames to know this, that, that Job uh, you know, was one of the very first stories of, of mankind, even from right after Adam and Eve into that. We, we really don't know, but we do know the context is more of an ancient time period. And Job's situation, his encounter in life, started being told to people. Here's what happened to this faithful man of God. Here's the situation he endured. So that story was told, that story was told. And then at some point, someone wrote it down. Hey, we, we, you know, we have this, these pictures, these truths, these accounts of what happened. And when you read Job, it's a pretty good-sized book. There's a whole lot of accounting, of you know, telling what went on. So to think about someone taking the time to memorize and be able to recount these things says that it was very, very significant in the life of people, that you would take that much time and go to that level of detail to tell this story over and over again, that it gets memorized and put into people's minds. The purpose of the book is the key thing, the key reason that in my mind it, the story did last and continue on. The purpose highlights God's sovereignty over all things in creation, including Satan and suffering. We will kind of walk through those pictures there. But it also reveals a way of godliness and how believers should respond to suffering when they experience it in life. 
because the bottom line is, and this is why I think the story is told over and over again, we get this idea and we see promises from Scripture that as we know God and we love God and we serve God, what happens? God watches over us. He protects us. We speak of blessings and finding favor with God. We see it in Scripture. You know, Moses told the children of Israel in Deuteronomy, Today I set before you blessings and curses. In the book of Joshua, choose this day whom you will serve. And God said, Good things flow when you obey me and punishment and not good things come when you disobey me. And so we see this set up in scripture. So in our mind it works out that if we're trying to do right, then good things happen. But what happens in life and in our experiences when you're trying to do right and good things don't happen? What do you do with that story? What do, you, what do you do with those accounts, those interactions in life? And I think that's why Job stuck so much in people's minds because people, we, we all, people wrestle with suffering, with hardships, with difficulties. I don't know of a person who's like, hey, sign me up for death and you know, destruction and suffering and hardship. We, we don't want to take that course. And so the telling of Job's story over and over again is a reminder to people, some lessons. Job is considered wisdom literature, and there is some very, very valuable wisdom for us in the book of Job as we wrangle with suffering and what to do with, how to respond when bad things happen to those who are trying to faithfully and obediently serve God. Because it will happen. None of us are immune to those things. What do we respond? Where's God in the midst of that? What's true about him? What's not true? Everything can really come into doubt. And you all probably, uh, like I, have seen people go through times of suffering. And it can do one of two things. It can draw people closer to God. Or it can send people further away from God. You know, their response, their interpretation uh, of things in that, a lot goes into it. So that being said, um, I think what I want to do, and I apologize, I uh, sat down, I I pulled some websites to kind of put these outline things together, just kind of pull and and, and drop it on some paper, and then I add my notes and my thoughts to it. And I put the key verses in there last week, and then I got to reading back through, kind of just getting some things in my own mind, and was like, oh man, I left off a ton of verses, because Job's got some really, really good stuff in it. But let me first just kind of give you the context. If you will get this, and it's a pretty simple outline, if you get the flow of what's going on, it really really helps your reading and your understanding of Job. Uh, The first two chapters describe the calamity, the disaster that befalls Job. He was a man who was righteous before God, who tried to please God, had a great reputation, was well respected, very godly man. Good things were happening. Satan goes to God and basically uh, God says, have you seen my servant Job and his faithfulness to me? And Satan tempts, and I'll talk about this a little bit later, at a point that's a temptation for all of us. And basically Satan says, oh yeah, Job loves you and he serves you because you're blessing him and you're showing him favor and you're doing good things in his life. It's easy to love God and serve God when things are going good. But if you were to allow me to bring some calamity, some disaster, some destruction to Job, he'd change his tune. Job wouldn't serve you if things weren't going so well. So God gives Satan permission to go, and he does bring disaster on his livestock, on his family. Uh, He loses a lot of material possessions and things very near and dear to him, being his family. 
Satan comes back and he appears before God again. And God says, well, do you see my servant Job who's still faithfully serving me? And Satan's like, well, yeah, but he's got his health. You know, at least the guy's healthy. You know, can you, you see how Satan's distorted and twisted in all this? You know, still, okay, well, that didn't happen. So God says, okay, you can bring a physical ailment upon him. You just can't kill him. You can't take his life. And so he brings boils and, you know, illness upon Job. When he's sitting in sackcloth and ashes, his wife comes along and is like, why don't you curse God and die? Just get this over with. God's forsaken you. He's left you. Uh, and we'll look at this verse later. And Job's like, who am I to, you know, say what God does or doesn't do? And so he responds in godliness through that. And so that's the context of chapter 1 and chapter 2. This disaster, the health, everything is taken from Job. Basically, he's just sitting here by himself and mourning grief, loss, and the bottom fell out of his life. Well, then Job's friends come to speak to him. So starting in chapter 3, what you get are different friends of Job. And I kind of use the parenthetical thing there because they come along to Job and they try and speak truth to him and try and get Job to make some changes to admit to sin in his life. And, and we'll, I'll talk a little bit about in a minute why that happens. But they will come in and one friend will speak and then Job will respond. And then another friend will come in and he'll speak and try and convince Job to, to see things his way. You know, and get him to, to think right about God and to, to confess his sins and, and to, to acknowledge you know, where he's gone wrong. And then God may restore him and bring you know, blessings back into his life. And so he leaves and then Job defends himself. So we have this dialogue back and forth, and that's the part you need to know. That'll take place for like 38 chapters, you know, in the book of Job. It's this back and forth of his friends saying, here's what's going on. And Job's like, no, I promise that's not the case. And the next friend comes in and says, all right, let me try this. And they go back and forth with three friends. They do two cycles. Then this fourth guy comes in, and he's apparently younger than the others, but he's got as much attitude as all three of them put together. You know, he basically says, well, I know I'm younger, and I try to let you old guys do this, but since you can't convince him, let let me give you my take on this. And so he then, his name is Elihu. He's the fourth friend that comes in. He does the same thing. Job responds back. And then the very end of the book, God enters back into the scene. And so God comes and he speaks to Job. Uh, he puts Job through some questions. And basically my summation of this is always like this. God comes to Job and says, Job, are you God? And he gives him a bunch of examples and asks a bunch of questions about what Job did or didn't do. And Job kind of goes, no, I'm not God. And God says, you're right, I'm God. And Job says, you're right. I, I, I repent. I, I acknowledge that. You're God. I'm not. And at that point, God then uh, restores, brings you know, family, blessings, things back to Job in his life. Obviously, he doesn't get his initial first you know, set of children and family and possessions back, but God restores him, his health, his prosperity, his righteousness. Job, uh, God tells Job to go pray for his friends. He basically says to the friends, all right, you, you knuckleheads over here. I'm not hearing your prayers, but this guy that you thought was the sinner, when he prays on your behalf, then I will you know, acknowledge you through him. All right, so God kind of rebukes them through it. And that's kind of how the, the story ends. God comes back and says, are you God? Job says, no, I'm not. And he says, you're, you're right. And so God you know, restores, brings these things back in, and the story's over. The key thing for me in that is always this. Job never got answers. God never told him what he went through, why, the lessons he was to learn. And the thing that sticks out to me in that is as we go through suffering, I think so many times as believers... We want to jump to the lesson part. God, I know this is going on. You want to teach me something. And if I can know what it is tomorrow, then it's over. Because once I learn the lesson, then the suffering and the pain ends. 
It doesn't always work that way. It doesn't always get ride, tied up, wrapped in a bow to where we know this was the lesson. This was the thing God was showing me through this. And sometimes the loss and the pain and the grief never goes away. Job's loss of his family, his children, and all that had happened in the beginning, that carried with him the rest of his life. And as believers, we need to recognize that there are things that we go through in life that we never get over. And we never don't hurt. And we never you know, stop thinking about those things. Losing family, uh, going through health issues, having physical ailments that you know, trek with us through life. There are things that, that journey with us the entire time. And we never get the answers. And we're never relieved of some of those things. The Apostle Paul, talking about his thorn in the flesh, whatever the speculation that was. He prayed to God to remove it. What did God tell Paul? My grace is sufficient. Paul, I'm not taking it away. You're going to have this when you go through trials. So it, it happens. And so we learn these things from the book of Job. So that context, if you remember that dialogue, it really helps in reading Job. I remember uh, as a student reading it, I mean, it's just huge, you know, prose and poetry. I don't do well with poetry anyway, you know. I remember in high school, we'd read this stuff, and our professor, you know, one to, or, my, or my teacher in high school talking about, well, we can, you can never know what an author is saying because they're not alive now to read it. And so we had this poem, and we had to write an interpretation. So I wrote it, she told me it was wrong, and I was like, well, how can it be wrong? You know, you just said we don't know what the guy meant because he's not here to ask him. So this is my interpretation of what he's saying. So, you know, this kind of stuff. And I've been reading through Job and I was like, what is going on? But when you get this idea that it's a conversation, a dialogue back and forth, it really helps because what you may want to do is take one person, one part of the dialogue and read it. It may be a chapter, you know, two chapters long and it's pretty intense kind of walking through. Give yourself a break, you know, go get you some coffee, splash some water in your face and come back and you read Job's response to it, but it, it can get to, it's a pretty big book, and it, it's pretty intense in that. But with that said, let's walk through some of uh, some of my my favorite verses in here, some key verses, and then I was just, I was amazed as I went back through this time, I got a whole lot of verses uh, underlined and highlighted in the book of Job. There's some really, really significant stuff. But start chapter 1, verse 1, uh, who this guy is. There was a man in the land of Uz, not Oz, but the land of Uz, uh, with the U there, whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away evil. Uh, look on over verse 21. Uh, his, uh, as he was speaking to his wife, he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, we sing that song to somebody, blessed be your name. You know, the bridge, you give and take away, you give and take away. That's what Job acknowledged. You know, hey, we, we're the potter. We're the, we're the creation. And what God does, God's going to do. But blessed be his name regardless. Interesting note, and keep this context for the rest of the book. Verse 22, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now, that is a very, very important verse because throughout this book, Job shakes his fist at heaven and Job doesn't mince words with what he thinks about what he's going through. I mean, he pulls no punches in pouring out his heart and his grief and his hurt and his anguish to God. Yet in the midst of that, he did not sin. You know what that tells us? God is big enough to handle our emotions wherever our emotions may fall. Sometimes there's anger. 
Sometimes there's grief, there's sorrow, there's brokenness, there's doubt. God can handle all of those. And Job poured all of those out to God. But he never sinned by doing it, and he never charged God with wrong. I've seen this over and over again. I think I spoke a little bit about it a few months ago, that... um, You know, when we get to this point in our lives and we think that we can't be honest and transparent and we can't give these things to God and shake our fist at Him and cry out, we kind of bottle that stuff up inside and it becomes a a, a bitterness and an anger or resentment that grows there. And we feel like we can't give it to God because we're not good Christian people for not putting a smile on our face and going, wow, look at the suffering I'm going through. Man, it's great. You know, we talk about this with the joy. I think that was that lesson where we kind of equate joy and happiness happiness and we're not happy about our circumstances but we can have joy in those times but in those sorrowful moments give it to God lay it out there so that as those things come out God can instill within you through the power of the Holy Spirit whatever it is that you need if it's peace if it's joy it's mercy, whatever that is. But when we hold on to those things so often, it just becomes a bitter root within us in our relationship and our walk with God. God can handle giving these things through to him. We see it through Job, and in all of that, he didn't sin, and he didn't charge God with wrong, but he was very open and honest about where he was, and God was able to continue his work through Job because there was that line of communication, basically. Uh, so so don't, um, and again, I just I shared about, in my mind, and just talking with uh, with unbelievers and engaging them over time, when Christians go through great suffering and grief and hardship and we do this whole smile and it's not that big a deal and, you know, God's got this, he's in control and it doesn't bother me that, you know, my, my child was killed or my spouse is suffering or we've, you know, gone through bankruptcy and stuff and, and we act like we're not hurting, a, a, a world looks at us and goes, really? And they, they question God's character. They, what kind of a God would not want you to hurt and grieve when this is going on? And so when we, we give that facade, we wear that mask of, hey, everything's fine, it's good, God's got this. I, I think it, in, for some individuals, it becomes a barrier in their, their pursuit and, and desire uh, to even know God you know, and want to seek after Him. So that authenticity that, hey, you know what? I, I'm not liking where we are, but as Job said, naked I came from the womb, naked I'm going to go back, can't take it with me, you never see a U-Haul attached to a hearse, you know, all this kind of stuff. So, you know, but I'm going I'm to bless God and seek after Him through all this. And if that means pouring my heart out to Him and, and shaking my fist at heaven, I'm going to do that and then say, God, show me what to do next. And we'll see one of the things we learn from this is we can trust God to show us what to do next and to bring about uh, glory and honor for himself. Okay, Uh, turn to chapter 4. I'll kind of take you through chapter by chapter. So we'll flip around too much. Chapter 4. Verse 17. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? When you get into Job, there are some conclusions that that you draw, that you can draw from the account and the life and the situation that Job encounters. And so these conclusions are very natural for us to draw, but then 
our theology and what we know about God doesn't mesh with these things. For instance, people will look at Job's situation or they look at believers uh, going through... um, hardships and difficult situations and they say God is not all powerful. He's not the almighty God because innocent people are suffering. Good people have tragedy that befalls them. So therefore God's not all powerful because an all powerful God could have stopped what was taking place. Just a month ago we're looking at Sandy Hook and what happened there. How could a loving God let that go on? He's not powerful if he didn't stop that shooter from going in and you know taking those lives in that place. So people look at a circumstance or a situation and say this about God, that God's not all powerful. He's not an almighty God. Or they'll look and say, well he's not a just God. It's not right. It's not fair that this person, good person, moral person, innocent person, what it, it's not fair it's unjust that this has happened to them. And so we question uh, you know, the justice of God and that he is he's loving, he's merciful, and he's kind. And in that, we're also making an assumption that says humans are innocent. We can be right and true and righteous and pure. Therefore, we don't deserve bad things that come into our life. So you look at at tragedy and those three things. God's not all-powerful. He's not just or innocent or humans, people, can be innocent and right before God in and of themselves. So that's what you surmise from a situation. But when you look at theology and you look at Scripture, what the Bible says, what does the Bible say about those three things? Is God all-powerful? The Bible affirms He is. Is God just? The Bible affirms he is. Are people innocent? No. And so we got a problem here. You know, we we would think these three things, but the Bible tells us these three things. So what do we do with this? The basic answer, and it's part of Jewish culture and even kind of settles into uh, Christian psyche sometimes, is all suffering, all hardship comes because of sin in a person's life. If we, you know, look at the the all-powerful, the just, and, uh, you know, God, what was the other one on here? Uh, humans being innocent, we know that's not true, then every amount of suffering and hardship that comes into our life must happen as a result of sin. And that was Jewish theology. That was thought. If something bad happened in your life, you did wrong and you're being punished for it. Remember Jesus in the New Testament when uh, he, his disciples came to him with the man who was born blind and they said, Master, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? If there's something bad that happens, then there must be a cause of sin somewhere. And Jews believe that, that uh, even children could sin in the womb, which would cause birth defects or illnesses or diseases that they had when they were born. So there's this mindset that if something wrong happened, it must be because of sin. That's important because of what you see in chapter 4, verse 17, when Job's friend, he's trying to say to Job, Job, you're a sinner. You did something wrong. God's punishing you because of this. Do you think about how that changes your life? When bad things happen and it's because of sin. I mean, you live in this fear, this judgment, this condemnation that what have I done wrong now? And how far does that trek to? I've got a kid at home tonight running a 103 degree fever. Was that his sin, my sin, or Shelly's sin? 
I'm putting it on Shelly, all right? So <laughs> she's not here to defend herself. So <laughs> see, like, man, that was perfect, wasn't it? Wow, awesome. The pride, the pride go before the fall. That's right. All right. Okie dokie. Was I making a point about something? <laughs> totally lost that. <laughs> that was good. So, but, th- but that's the idea of where this comes from, that if there's something wrong that happened, minor, big, whatever, it's because of sin in your life. Job's friend approached him with this mindset, this mentality. So in chapter 4, verse 17, that's what he's saying to Job. Can mortal man be right before God? The answer is no. Can a man be pure before his maker? Job, the answer is no. You know that. I know that. Admit your sin, confess it, and God will you know, heal you from that. And Job says to his buddy later, I didn't do it, <laughs> you know, so because you have this, uh, this dichotomy that takes place here. Uh, chapter 13, flip on over a few chapters. Chapter 13, yes. There are a lot more that are in here, but uh, I'm just kind of skimming through some. Uh, listen to Job here, chapter 13, verse 15, uh, about his faith in God, even though he's still confused and he's hurting. Though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. So it's like, look, you know, God may take me out. He, he's destroyed everything, but I'm still going to hope in him. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going I'm to plead with him, you know, in my case, in my desire, and, and my you know, frustrations with all this. He's being vulnerable, honest with God in this. Flip over to Job chapter 19. Man, we're missing a whole lot in here. This is this, this a really, really rich book. Job 19, verse 25. Preached this several times at funerals. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eye shall behold, and not another, my heart faints within me. And so this hope of this Redeemer that Job speaks of, this one who is to come, we talked about finding Jesus uh, from, from the Old Testament, and we see this picture of the Redeemer who will come, that when we hope in Him and we trust in Him, even though our flesh dies, then will we live and we'll be with Him. Uh, and so this picture, this beautiful picture here, and his, his heart fainting within Him isn't you know, Him passing out, it's this, 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 this uh, surrendering of His heart that longs for that. My heart faints, it just goes weak in, in, in desire desire that I just give myself up so that my Redeemer would take and, and restore and build my heart to give me that life in Him. Uh, chapter 28, Job 28, verse 28, and He said to man, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. So Job speaking here of finding wisdom in God uh, and obeying Him, turning away from evil. And then flip over two chapters to Job 31 and see uh, the 
you know, one of the examples that Job gives of trying to fear God and that being wisdom and following his way of understanding and applying it to his life. Job 31 verse 1, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? So it's about the lust of the flesh and, and the purity here. He's like, I've made a covenant with my eyes that I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to let my eye wander. I'm not going to give in to those lustful thoughts. Um, we have a computer monitoring software for all of our pastors computers, all the computers in the church has a level of accountability. You, know, you can log and go where you want to on the internet. Nothing is blocked, but it keeps a record of that. That program, that software is called Covenant Eyes. From Job chapter 31 verse 1, so I've made a covenant with my eyes that I want my eyes to see the right thing to, to, to guard my heart and uh, my eyes from this sin temptation that's there. And so this is Job talking about how he applied that wisdom. Alright, Job chapter 38. Man, I wish we could read the whole chapter. This I, I love uh, this chapter. Verse 38, I'm sorry, chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Yeah, Job, you've been saying all this stuff, you've been talking. Who is this who's coming and, and wanting this court, this hearing, to present his case with me? God says, verse 3, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Here we go. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning star sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no further, no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. So God says, I formed the oceans and I determined where the oceans would stay and where they would go and where they wouldn't. Job, were you there? Did, did, did you watch me? Did you, did you do this, Job? Did you create and tell the oceans where it's going to go and where it's not going to go? And I would just see Job going, he, 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 <laughs> you got it shrinking down. Uh, let me see. I'm not going to read. The, it's just it's so good. Verse 22. Perfect for where we are this week. Have you entered the snorehouses of the snow? Are you, dude, are you all watching the weather? More snow this weekend. Come on, this is great. My kid, we're we're big snow people. We love it, man. We we were out for an hour and a half last week before it all melted, and I hope we get a foot this weekend too. It, it's great. So, you know, have you entered the storehouses of snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed, or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? And so, this is just this is what God does. He just walks through. Job, did you do this? Did you, you know, creation? creatures, the, you know, the sun and the moon and animals and leviathans in here, you know, the reference of, uh, that we have of dinosaurs here and the description of that, you know, being there. So just so much in Job that God is saying, Job, were you there? Did you do this? Are you in control of these things? And, and you know, Job just going, oh man, what have I done? Obviously it's not. Uh, flip over to chapter 42. I'm going to wrap this up here. He says in verse 5, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. God, you, you're, you're God. I'm not. I, I trust you. I, I, 
turn from those accusations. All I, I, I trust you. I, I despise myself. I repent. Trust you with whatever comes at this at this point forward, and that's where God brings and and uh, restores things. So, great book, great great book. I don't know if you've ever read through Job. Uh, again, it's a uh, it, it's big. There's there's a lot in there, but if you get a chance, significant significant story. Themes in theology. Uh, you see number one there, suffering is unavoidable in life. It happens to the righteous, and it happens to the unrighteous. And sometimes we see that. The righteous suffer when the unrighteous don't. That's a theme that's brought up and it's referenced in here. Uh, Number two, God is our source of hope, redemption, and salvation when we suffer. As we go through it, the question we ask is, are we trusting our Creator even though we cannot understand our circumstances? Do we trust him even when it doesn't make sense, even when it seems like he's absent, even when he's quiet, there are crickets chirping in heaven when we pray, when we seek him, there's no response. Do we still trust our creator? That's what God calls us to, to trust him even when we don't get the explanations. Number three there, it's a picture of true godliness. Job lamented and he cried out to God. He he accused God at times. But in the midst of that, he still maintained his dependence. He he sought God out. I think that's a key thing in godliness is, you know, no matter where you may find yourself and what may be going on within you or, or around you, cry out to God. I mean, that's the ultimate picture of godliness is that no matter what it is, you go to him because he is the source of what you need. If the situations or circumstances are going to change, guess who's going to change it? It's going to be God. But if it's a change that needs to happen within you, guess who's going to change it? It's going to be God. I think at some point, I may have played the song Scott Crepain had out a few years ago. Uh, Great song, wonderful, wonderful lyrics. You can YouTube, but I'm sure there's probably 822,000 versions of people that have done it. But uh, it's a song called Sometimes He Calms the Storm, Sometimes He Calms the Child or Calms His Child. Uh, And it's just a great truth that, you know, you see that. Sometimes Jesus, it's, it's the situation, the circumstances change, but at other times those things don't, but God does the work within the person. And that's godliness, seeking out after him, trusting him, and allowing him to do whatever work he's going to do, but your trust and your hope is in him. Uh, number four reminds us that there are three forces at play in the interaction between God and man. There's God, there's man, and then there's Satan, the adversary, the accuser. Uh, And Satan's thought, his accusation against Job is he's only righteous because righteousness pays. You know, he's, you know, you're doing good things, therefore Job is serving you. And one of the greatest temptations that Satan ever uh, sets in front of us that we are very prone to is to love the gift and not the giver. That's very common. And, 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 you know, Satan, it'd be easy for him to make that accusation and to prove it in the lives of many, many, many people. That we only love God when things are going good and we don't when things go bad. And that's the accusation that Satan sat there because he saw that and he knows that. He sets that temptation in front of people. But the question becomes, what do we do? What do we do when the stuff disappears? What do we do when the benefits aren't there? When we feel like we're not getting what we deserve? 
comes back to our righteousness before God. Well, we, we should get good things. Well, who are we before God? Grace in the gospel shows us that we don't deserve anything good. We get wonderful things from God, but we can't demand. We have nothing to bargain any of those things. And so uh, these, these forces uh, are there. Number five reminds us, though, that suffering comes only under God's permissive will. When you go back and look at those first two chapters, Satan is coming to God, getting permission, God allowing these things to come into Job's life. When you go back and... Uh, it's James, right? We're reading James where when you're tempted, don't say it's God. How bad is that? I've been reading all month and you're going, is that the right book I'm reading? Uh, yeah. <laughs> changing my life. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it, when one is tempted, you can't, God's not tempting. God doesn't set temptation for us to sin against him, but God does allow times of testing, and he allows Satan to put temptation before us uh, in order to uh, see where we are in our dependence and our trust on him following the wisdom that Job spoke of. The wisdom uh, of God is to fear God and to uh, avoid evil. That shows that we have understanding of who God is. And then number six, again, just to wrap up here, some mysteries of God and his workings will never be understood. We don't always get answers. It won't make sense. It will never stop hurting. You know, that we will absolutely feel nothing. We, we, we move on and we function and we may not think about it as much, but there's always going to be grief and sorrow and we're always going to feel those things. You know, my mom passed, it's been three years now, uh, last November and still just, you know, randomly things will happen and uh, thoughts with the kids or things that we see. You know, Christmas is always, it was tough coming through that again, you know, doing all that. It, um, it still hurts sometimes. I, I, I'm assuming that's never going to go away. Some of you have had loved ones gone much longer than I have, but you know, three years in, I can tell you at least three years later, it's still not easy, you know, to have, you know, lost her at the age of 55, you know, and uh, so it's, it's way too short. The older I get, the younger that age is, you know, but uh, it, it's, uh, it's pretty incredible uh, that that happens, but we, we don't always get under, don't always get answers for what took place, but remember this, Job speaks, his friends spoke, but ultimately when all was said and done, the book of Job reminds us, God has the final word. God always has the final word. Take trust in that. Take great confidence. Let that be a source of hope that God has the final word in your life, in your situations, and nothing is over. Nothing is finished until God says it is. All right? Okay, well, let's pray. And uh, got a prayer group will be meeting. You are in the room by the elevator, right, Fred? Yes, sir. Okay, all right, let's pray. Lord, one of the most... Um, commonly referenced people outside of Jesus himself, Lord, could very well be uh, Job. We speak of the patience of Job, and I kind of think that's an interesting thing, because in a lot of ways, when I read through, Job wasn't very patient. Uh, But Lord, he he suffered a great deal. Uh, Lord, he was so very human in his experience of emotions and grief and loss and sorrow, uh, all things that I think we can readily identify with. I think that's why Job's story is so common and so prevalent that, uh, Lord, things happen that are, are difficult things that we don't enjoy and we don't like and we would never ask for ourselves or even in many instances our worst enemy. Yet those things happen. And Father, they can have such an impact in people's lives or an impact to draw closer to you as we pursue a way of godliness, as we trust you, Father, and realize that you do have the final word in our lives and our situations. 
But also, Lord, so often Satan can use these temptations and these trials and these struggles to pull us away from you. Father, to seek out uh, comfort and peace and answers in in the ways of the world, Lord, to escape uh, through so many different uh, venues of of drugs, of alcohol, of other you know sin behaviors, Father, to just kind of numb the pain and to not think about those things, or Father, to question your very character. Lord, we see both of those responses as we go through life, but we see Job's basic teaching, Father, is that we need to come to you. No matter what we're going through, no matter how we may feel about it, no matter the level of hurt or pain or or, or frustration or doubt or anger that we feel, Lord, we can bring it to you because, God, you are the source of all that we need. Lord, and if anything changes in our situations, it's going to be because of you. If anything changes within us, it's going to be because of you. So I pray that we would be encouraged by Job's situation to know that, Lord, we're not alone. Lord, we all suffer. We all have difficulties and hardships, and by comparison, it may not be as significant as what we see in other people's lives, but Lord, it's very real to us as we go through it. But Lord, we're reminded from Job's story that you are God, that God, you are working plans and purposes and things that are so much greater than who we are, what we could ask or what we could imagine, and that God, when all is said and done, you will have the final word. And Lord, sometimes that final word will be some resolution, will be comfort and peace and healing and restoration on earth. But Lord, even if not, we know that in eternity that our Redeemer lives and that, Father, one day we will live with him. And that gives us hope and it brings us comfort. And we thank you for those promises that we see in Job's story. Help us apply them to our lives. We pray this, Father, in your name. Amen.